Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So, why do we study Scripture? You ever thought about that? Like, why do we study Scripture? Why, why do people preach? Why are you decided to come and sit here today and, and sing and, and then obviously sit under the teaching of God's Word? It was just like really just practically think about why you do that. I mean, because you're, you're donating some time, and if you're reading your Bible and you're in life group or in a D group or just your personal devotion time, why do you do that? I mean, the book we're studying right now is almost 2,700 years old. Why do we care what this guy named Jonah did 2,700 years ago? Why do you care? That's kind of what I've been kind of wrestling with, not really wrestling with, because just help us to kind of clarify the importance of that, the importance of, of studying and caring about what this man named Jonah his life and what Scripture records for us, what happened and what he was told by God to do, why it matters. Because it does matter. And so why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, very simplistically, there's many reasons, but the reason that we study Scripture, the reason that we read the Bible, primarily is is because we want to see who God is. The Scripture tells us who he is, because it's him, it's his word. He is the living word, and he's revealing himself to us through the scripture. And so when we read, we find out more about him, and, and, and it's vast. I mean, it's, it's vast, and we read the Old Testament, and, and we, we see creation, and then we see the whole Israel, and, and all of the, the disobedience, and we see the great flood, and, and we see all of these things, but all those things are communicating attributes or, or God's plan and why, and it's all fitting together. And sometimes we read a part and we're like, okay, I don't understand how this fits into the overarching thing. Then we come to the New Testament. We see that God became a man, and he, he walks the earth, and he, he dies on a cross, and he lives a sinless life, and he resurrects from the dead. And then we read prophecy, what we think is to come, and, and a new heaven and new earth, and like this just this vastness of who he is. And so the first thing we come to Scripture and we say, we just, we just need to know who this, who this majestic, eternal God is. I, I want to know. And that can be overwhelming. But then we also come to Scripture to kind of find out who we are. Like, what are we doing here? Like, who are we in this big, beautiful, cosmic thing that God is doing? And then we don't really like that so much because we find out that we're, we're fallen. We're sinful. We're not obedient and so that's, that's a big one for us to absorb. In fact, a lot of people don't like to read Scripture because they don't, they don't want that mirror held in front of them. They don't want that. But if they would just push on a little farther, they would begin to realize that the beautiful thing about Scripture is that Scripture goes on to tell us that what this beautiful, loving, all-purposeful, all-eternal God does is he's come to redeem that view of us and to transform us into his children and to forgive us. And that's the beauty. But we, many of us can't seem to get that far in this picture. But as I've been thinking about the book of Jonah, and this is like four chapters, which obviously chapters, you know, Jonah didn't write in chapters. We came along and did that later for our own benefit. Most of your Bibles is two sheets, two pages, one here and one there, right? That's all it is. So why is that important that we know? Well, I think 
one of the reasons we come to Scripture and we study is because knowing the past and what God did helps us in the present. It, it, and we'll get, dive into that a little bit. Like, but knowing that helps us know how to live and how to bring glory to God in the present. All right. So that's kind of the teaser about where we're going here. So now I want to remind you of Jonah. Like, you may have been here last week. You may have not been here last week. Um, most studies show that if you were here last week, you probably don't remember most of what I said anyway. Um, so I want to explain a little bit about who Jonah is, and some of this will be a little bit of review for some of you if you were paying attention last week. So Jonah is a minor prophet. Um, what does it mean to be minor? It just means that it's usually a smaller uh, piece of scripture. It's not really long. It's usually very narrow in its scope. In other words, it doesn't come cover big theological things or lots of history of the Old Testament. It's pretty, it's pretty small. And so he's called a minor prophet. Doesn't make him less significant in the scripture, or less significant in God's purposes, but just they would call him minor prophets. There was 12 minor prophets we see in scripture. We see that the book here is written in third person. And I'm no English major, but I think most of you understand what third person is. He's, he's not, doesn't seem like he's writing in a first person, like he's talking. Uh, it's third person, like he's writing about somebody else. However, I believe that this is Jonah writing. In, in the Old Testament, many of the writings of the prophets were written in third person, okay? Because it's not about them. I think that's the biggest thing that God was trying to say. It's not about you. I want you to write about this situation, but it's not like I, I, I. That, that could get perceived wrong in our, in our minds sometimes. And so I, I think, believe that that's one of the reasons why much of it is written in the third person. So when did it take place? Well, I think these literal, actual events took place some about 750 years prior to Jesus, God becoming flesh and taking on flesh, uh, and then obviously in, in the first century there. What is the book about? Mm, there's a couple themes here, and we're going to talk about some of these themes today, and as we kind of address some of these things, it's about grace and mercy and repentance, it's about obedience, it's, it's a just about the beauty of God. It's, there's just many things that we can kind of draw. And we're going to draw a few of those things in the first few verses today as we read this. A bigger question, though, is, is it fictional or historical? Now, if you probably heard, remember this if you were last week. I said, for, for some people that think it's fictional, why do they think it's fictional? Because when you tell somebody that this guy named Jonah was swallowed up by a big fish and lived in his belly for three days and then was thrown up later, and then he went and did something. People say, oh, that's fictional. <laughs> like, you know, that's not possible, right? And what I reminded all of you, I think, if you remember last week, I said, look, can you tell me how God is eternal? And I didn't have anybody up afterwards come up to me and tell me that, explain that to me. Can you explain that how God has spoke everything into existence not just our world, not just life, but the galaxies, millions of galaxies that astronomers now see. No one's able to tell me that. Can you explain how he split the Red Sea, how he raised his son from the dead, how he brought other people back to life, how he fed thousands, millions of people in the desert with something called manna that manifested itself and came down and laid on the ground and they ate it for 40 years? So when we think about, well, how is it possible that somebody could live in a fish for three days and we say, well, that's not possible. I'm just telling you, you should go back and check your belief because you would say that you believe many things that are far greater 
of miracles than that. And wouldn't it be so, and shouldn't we expect that, out of God? I mean, God is not human. He's not defined and confined in the parameters of what we would understand to be our life and our world. He's beyond that. And so it would only make sense that if God is going to be God and he's going to show himself as God, that he will do things that only God can do. That just makes sense to me, right? And so it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, if God can take a sinful person and transform their heart, which is a miracle in itself, and make them a new creation in Christ Jesus, to me, that is a greater miracle than having somebody live in the belly of a fish for three days. Because I know my hard heart. I know the sinfulness that reigns in me at times in my flesh. And if God can transform that, being in the belly of a fish for three days is not a big deal. So what, do I, what am I trying to drive here? I believe that Jonah is a historical book. I believe that it's absolutely historical. Jonah was a real person, and I'm going to demonstrate that, not just from the Scripture, right? Let's, I want you to go to the Scripture, and we're going to see what that looks like. So, but the thing that I think is the biggest weight that says that Jonah was a real person, a real prophet, really went to Nineveh, the city really did repent, is that we have someone that can validate that for us, and that's Jesus. He validates this. It's going to be kind of review for a few of you, but last week we looked at Matthew chapter 12, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 42. I'm just going to read this. Now, there's some of it we're not going to talk about because we really dove in last week and kind of discussed a lot of this, but, but I think it's worth reading again because I want to bring this to our attention again because I really think it's important because I don't want your minds ever wandering through the service about whether this is real or fictional. And so we need to put this issue to kind of to rest here. Matthew chapter 12, verse, starting in verse 39. Now, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and some of the religious leaders and the people. And he says, but he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. They were, they were asking for him to do more miracles. Right? He had fed the 5,000. He's done some things and they want more. He says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay. So right there, Jesus is just shooting one over the bow. He's referencing there's a guy named Jonah, and he's a prophet. He's not saying, well, I'm going to reference some parable back 700 years ago. No, he's referencing a real person named Jonah and says he was a prophet, right? He says that. And then he goes on and says, just as Jonah was, in, was uh, three days and nights in the belly of a great fish, so now he's saying this real guy who's a prophet really was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, Right? It's not a, he's not saying it's a parable. It's not some teaching thing, like some allegory. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's referencing, kind of comparison there. Then he says this. He says, the men of Nineveh. Okay, so, so we have two things here, just as soon as he says that. There's a real place called Nineveh, and archaeology, we, there's ruins. Uh, Nineveh is just uh, near Mosul, and, and you've maybe heard of the city of Mosul. It's in Iraq. Um, it's one of the larger cities there. The Nineveh, the, the ruins are real near there. And so we know the city really existed. It's, it's in antiquity. It's, it's written about many places, right? So now we know that there's a real guy named Jonah. He's really a prophet. There's really a city named Nineveh. And there's men there. And it says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
Okay, so what happens? This real prophet, real guy, goes to a real city, and he really does preach, and they really do repent. That's kind of the picture. Nowhere in here am I getting a sense that this is a parable or an allegory that didn't take place, but that Jesus or the Scripture's using it to kind of teach us something. Now, there's great places for parables, and we look in the Gospels, there's lots of parables that, that are stories that Jesus tells because they have biblical meaning and principles, and there's allegories that have things that we can learn, and they're lessons for us. But this is not one of those things. Then he goes on there, and he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. We talked about this last week. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. And all that Jesus is trying to say through all of that is, look, I'm here. You esteem highly Solomon and things of the past and Jonah. I'm here preaching the good news. I am here telling you this good news, and you now are not believing me. And that was the whole point of what he was trying to say. So, with this idea that we learn from the past... And so as we study this book of Jonah over the next several weeks, we're learning from the past because the past tells us about God and that helps us in the present. So here's your big idea. Knowing what God has done in the past strengthens our faith in the present. So knowing what God has done in the past, like swallowing up a man, a prophet, telling him to do something, that God is going to cause this city to come to repentance, knowing that rightly will help us in the present, help us honor God in the present. So what we learn in the past, because otherwise, why would we study an ancient writings? If it's not teaching us something about the present, how we can live differently, how God is really who he says he is. I think about a lot of times, um, and you know, we read this obviously on Easter sometimes and, and different places, but Isaiah chapter 53. It's about, about this time frame, BC, about 750 years before Christ. And there's this beautiful thing that Isaiah writes where he basically describes the crucifixion of Jesus and who he is. He doesn't know Jesus. He has no idea. When I read that, no matter when, I've read it for years. Every time I read, read it, I am moved to the core and think, oh my gosh, God is exactly who he says he is. And no other God could do this. I mean, no other person can make this happen. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. And, and so when we study this book, that's where I want your mindset to be. What can we learn about a book, some, some young prophet, maybe we don't know how old he was, from 2,700, 2,800 years ago, that we can now help us in the present. Like, what does it help us in the present? What can it remind us of, right? So know, knowing what God has done in the past strengthens our faith in the present. So let's dive in. We just got four verses today. Let's see if we can get these covered. Jonah, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. Further evil has come up before me. So that first line, he says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. How did the word of the Lord come to Jonah? Did he get a letter? Did he get a document? Did he get a postcard? No. The Lord spoke to him. And, I mean, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big, 
deal because he's asking him to do something that Jonah doesn't want to do. And so Jonah's got to believe that this was really God. And, and clearly, Jonah does believe it's really God because what Jonah does is flees the other direction as far and as fast as he can do it. So he knows what God is asking. He just doesn't want to do it. And we're going to dive into that a little bit. But I want to talk just a little bit about this idea of the Lord speaking to Jonah. Obviously, in the Old Testament, um, God speaks to to humanity differently in some respects than I think he does today. And what I mean by that is that he spoke to Abraham. Okay, there was no scriptures yet, right? There was no, there was no Bible. Obviously, at some point in Jewish history, they were writing and recording historical accounts. Moses writes the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And so God speaks to him to write that because he writes about things that he was, he's not at. He, he doesn't know, right? So only God can give him that. Today, though, as, as born-again believers, we would say that this has been closed. In other words, God is not giving new revelation to his word. And why do I say that? Why do I think that's important? Because we want to be discerning when we listen to people, when we talk to people, um, and when we speak. So when someone says to you, the Lord told me. I think you need to be very careful. And you may be one of those people that uses that terminology, right? And I understand, I hope what you're trying to say is that, well, I, I think the Lord is leading me to do this or, or to not do this or whatever. He's kind of like, and sometimes I would even argue that we kind of hear the Holy Spirit in our head directing us. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I believe that happens. I trust that that happens. I want it to happen. I believe it's happened in my life at some point. But I don't think it's wise to use the term or the, the, the statement, the Lord told me. Because when you say that, everybody else can't say a word back to you. What if I've been in, in, in settings before where somebody will say, the Lord told me, da, 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 da. And we all look at each other and say, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's true, right? I, I don't think that's probably what, that, that's not I don't feel that God is. Well, the Lord told us we're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. We're supposed to build a million-dollar addition. And all of us look at each other and say, well, the Lord's not telling us that. Then I don't know that the Lord's really saying that. And that's where you have to be very careful because in our flesh, we, we want things, and, and we're not trying to dishonor God necessarily, but, but we sometimes, the way we think, we can get, you know, kind of, have a spontaneous thought, and, and we just think, oh, no, we need to do that. It's because this is what the Lord said. And I, no, I don't think so. I think we need to test everything that we think the Lord is leading us to do back to Scripture. And then test it. Ask other people. Talk to people. And, and, and so, you know, if, 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 if somebody said, you know, I've I really been praying. I think the Lord's leading us, and I, th I think this is something we ought to look at. Okay, I can go with that. And then we can all pray about that. And if we all start feeling that the Lord's leading us that direction, we always look at Scripture. And then we, we want to be wise and we use biblical principles. And, and we get there, right? Absolutely. But we just wouldn't say, well, hey, you know, uh, Pastor Brian's a prophet. And he just told us that God has told him that we should build a million-dollar edition. No matter what, we, we just need to do it. Trust God and do it. I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's biblical, right? And so the reason I'm saying that here is because when we, where should, where should our our foundation be when we think about what God is teaching us. It's his word, right? It, it's not human thought. It's not human desires, and we have to be so careful about that. Why do I say that? Because think about this for a second. Why do we trust the Bible? As, as believers, I'm, I'm hoping you trust the Bible because you see things in it 
that you can validate, that you think are true, that were miraculous, were prophetic. But I think the number one reason we can trust the Bible is because the Bible was written by over 35 authors over a couple thousand years, and it all fits together. It all complements each other. I don't, I don't know that you really think about that, but that is like, that's, that is only God can do that. If you think about the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith writes a book. The Quran, basically Muhammad writes most of that. How do we validate that? How do we affirm that truth? Can't, because I don't think it's true. I think somebody wrote it, absolutely, and somebody put their thoughts in it and what they wanted, and I think Joseph Smith did that. But how do we affirm that? We can't, because God hasn't affirmed it in any way. Only God is establishing something, a book, that says, this is about me, and I'm going to have 35 different people write it over thousands of years, and it's going to fit together like a glove. There's going to be prophecy in it that's going to come true, and you can trust it. So once we have that, and I think then, I think in this book is closed. I think that's it. There's no more additional revelation that we're adding to Scripture. Now, that's not to negate that God doesn't lead us spiritually to make decisions. We pray, we ask for answers, we do those things. Absolutely. But to say that something God said, I think you need to stay in Scripture. You need to say, well, God said, you know, let there be light. And there was. God said this. God said this. I, you know, and this is in 1 John or whatever, right? We go there. That's the safe place to be, right? You think about these, um, I think it's the, the Book of Mormon, right? They have prophets, uh, like the highest prophet, and they're writing new scripture. They're writing new revelation and putting new things down all the time. We're not, that's not what happens in the Christian faith. This, this has, God has given us everything he's going to give us and everything we need and more than we need to tell us about him, about us, and to show us what he's done so that we can live better in the present. So when we think about the word of the Lord came to Jonah, I just want to share with you that's a, that's a statement that's been made over a hundred times in the Old Testament because until we have the scriptures the way we have today, God spoke through his Holy Spirit to the prophets and to the leaders of the, of the, you know, the Old Testament, to the church or to the synagogues, and spoke. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to you know, Jonah and all, all of these people, right? And many of the minor prophets worded the same way. All right, so what do we see here? What's the point? What's the thing I want you to kind of take away? God has given us the scriptures so that we can know him and remember what he's done. Why has God given us this? Going back to that again. So that we can know him know ourselves, and know what he has done, right? We can look at it and say, you've identified who you are and who we are, and you've done some crazy things and beautiful things, and now I can trust you, and I can, I'm going to base on how I live based on the fact that I trust this document. I trust this, this volume of Scripture. If I trust it and I believe it is true, it should shape how we live in the present, right? All right. So that's why we're trusting that there was a real person named Jonah, right? He was a prophet. He went to a real city named Nineveh, and he preaches repentance, and they repent. So to kind of further solidify this, who he is, the scripture goes on there. He says he's the son of Amidai. Well, how can we validate that? Well, we go other places in scripture. We go to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. 
It says, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Araba, according to the word of the Lord. Here it is. The God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. So we see there, even in the book of Kings, he's being identified. He's a real person. He's not a parable. He's the son of a real person, Amittai, and he's a prophet, right? Scripture validates Scripture. Always go to Scripture to validate Scripture. Who was from Gath Hepper? Oh, okay. What's Gath Hepper? That's where he's from. Where is Gath Hepper? Gath Hepper, I, I was going to put a picture up of it and I decided not to, but Gath Hepper, if you can think about Israel and there's the Sea of Galilee up here, um, right down from the southwest of the Sea of Galilee, there was a town called Gath Hepper. That is where Jonah's from. So not only do we know that he's a prophet, he's a real person, we know the city that he was, he's up. He was a Galilean, right? He was a Galilean. Where's where Jesus did most of his ministry some 750 years later. All right, so once again, we're defining and affirming Jonah's existence and who he is, right? Then it goes on there in the passage. It says, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, or that great city. So now God is speaking to Jonah. He's heard the word of the Lord, and he says, arise. That, that word there is, is, means, it's an infinitive. It means get up, go. Like, go to Nineveh. It's, it's not like, hey, I'd like you to do this. No, Jonah is getting a, an imperative, an instruction from God to go do something. This is, this is not something, Jonah clearly knew that God was asking this, right? He's, this wasn't just something that he was, God was kind of stirring in him. Clearly, there was a command here for him to go and go to Nineveh, right? Now, as we think about Nineveh, once again, we've established that it's a real city. I said it's near Mosul in, in Iraq. It's right there. There's ruins there, right? It's a real, real city. Um, at this time, this, this city was probably the largest city in the world, they believe, at this time. And it was founded by a guy named Nimrod. Now, you may, if you study your scripture in the Old Testament, you remember that name. You may remember that, um, he was the great-grandson of Noah, right? And I'm just saying this to, to kind of place this in contextual history. And once again, everything is, this is a historical account of something. So Noah had a couple, few sons. We know a few for one. Ham, right? Ham had a son named Cush. Cush had a son named Nimrod. Nimrod was the one that built this great city. It was about the same time as the city of Babylon was getting built, which is a little south there. We, we hear about Babylon all the time and prophetic things, and these two large cities were being built, right? So I want to read you that. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, and then verses 10 and 11. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. And so what do we know? Assyria was this nation in 750 BC, one of the largest nations. And, and the borders constantly changed because you had the, the Babylonian kingdom, the Assyrian nation, you had the Roman Empire. And so things were often shifting where Israel was at. But in 750 BC, basically Assyria ruled much of the, the land north of Israel, right? And this is where this city of Nineveh was. Now he goes on there in the text and he says, 
arise, go to Nineveh, so this real city, that great city, which is just explained how great that city was, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, when we read that text, it sounds like that God was not aware that the city was evil until something happened. No, God has been aware that the city is evil. God is using this way of speaking to man to have a dialogue with us. For instance, if God says, um, God's hand did this. Well, God's hand doesn't, doesn't have a hand. But it's a way of putting it in a way that we can understand what God is trying to tell us. So here he's just saying, call out against it. He's asking Jonah to go and to speak out and call it out, right? Because it's a horrible city. For their evil has come up before me. It means that it's gotten to a point where I'm not ignoring this anymore, right? I'm not letting it go. I'm going to act. I'm a holy God, and I'm going to act. Now, we see this multiple places in Scripture that God does this. We see it in the Old Testament as well when we see Sodom and Gomorrah. That's probably the, the, the pinnacle example. Obviously, it says, The Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Right? So he's acknowledging, once again, the sin of the cities, these cities and the plains. I will go down and see whether they have done what they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. So in other words, he's just having a conversation here. In this particular case, he's having a conversation with Abraham about this horrible city, and, and he's going to want to destroy this city because of their sin. So once again, I'm just showing you that that God is speaking in such a way to Jonah and to Abraham that he's aware of these things and he's having a conversation and showing that these cities are, are pagan cities and that they are sinful. So, what is Jonah, what is the book, what does that help us understand about God? Right? Because if, if it, we want to do know the past so that we can understand and how to live better in the, in the present. How do, we, how do we live better? How do we understand God in the present based on the past? Well, we can see here that, that God didn't destroy Nineveh right away, did he? Later, it does get destroyed much, many, hundred and some years later by the Babylonians. But here, God had every right to wipe Nineveh off the face of the map. They were evil. I didn't put the pictures up here because maybe I didn't think it was appropriate, but there are carvings and stone etchings of the Assyrians impaling their enemies on sticks, okay? They were a brutal pagan culture. We'll read something about them a little bit later. God had every right. He was just to remove them, just like he was just to remove Sodom and Gomorrah. But he doesn't. He sends this Israelite, Jonah, and tells him, I want you to go to them, and I want you to preach them and call out their sin. You think Jonah was up for that right away? Right? I mean, do you think that's what he was hoping to do? So what is God exhibiting there? He's giving mercy to them. What a, what a beautiful thing mercy is. I would ask you, are you, in, are you experiencing God's mercy right now? You are. You are. Why? Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. God is holy. Genesis, God said, in the day that you do this, you will die. I'm just. I will not let your, your sin rise up against me without having, right? The wages of sin is death, Roman, Paul says in Romans. Right? We have sin. He is just to, to, to kill us. 
And so we're experiencing, the psalmist says, his mercies are new every day. Every day when you wake up. Part of your prayer life in the morning, if, you, if you're struggling in your prayer life to praise God, when you wake up in the morning, just remember, I can, I, I can breathe again. I, I'm awake. God has not taken me out. <laughs> like, I, I'm a sinful person. He is giving me mercy, right? He's giving me mercy. So what is mercy? Because I think it's important. That mercy and grace kind of get intertwined, and, and there's multiple kind of nuanced definitions, but I think the general definition of mercy is not getting what you deserve, not getting what I deserve. We deserve justice. We don't get it, right? I I remember um, uh, Wesley's testimony, a young man that got baptized a while back, um, and he was in jail and and just through some circumstances and, and drug issues, and he so recognized, he knew he was supposed to be probably spend multiple maybe weeks or months and maybe even years in, in jail and prison. And God made a way that he received mercy and he didn't have to spend hardly any time there at all. And in his testimony, he said it was, it was God's mercy. He recognized it as what it was. Not getting what you deserve. Mercy. And think about that for a second. God sh- could have and been right to destroy Nineveh, but he gives mercy by not destroying them. And allowing them time to repent, right? And we think about how God is merciful. If we read from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, it says, For I will be merciful towards, this is God, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Right? He's not going to hold our sin against us. Like, we've done something, he's not going to... He's not going to kill us for our sin. He's not going to judge us at this particular point. And it says, I will remember their sins no more. It doesn't mean he won't remember them. He doesn't forget. It remembers he won't hold it against us any longer. Maybe a better picture about what God says about himself is found in Exodus chapter 34. This is when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's getting the the Ten Commandments. Actually, this is the second set of of tablets because the first ones were broken and destroyed. And he's up there and, and God speaks to Moses. And he says, the Lord God passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and the transgression of sin. So God says this about himself. He's merciful. He wants to forgive his love for people. He, that's who he says he is. So what's the thing that we can learn and remember by studying Jonah here? God is merciful. Remember that God is merciful. I, I think it's just something that we don't think about. So often we, we kind of complain about God. We, we complain about this or we complain about this is happening in my life and, and, and we think God's not doing enough. And I just want to say you're living in mercy every day. I mean, we live rebellious lives. We, unless I'm unaware, most of us sin at some level in our heart and our mind every day. Maybe nothing outwardly by God's grace, but we sin every day. We're prideful. We're selfish. We're all of those things. And God is merciful every day, every day. And we think about that in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's going to destroy the cities. 
Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plains, it says. And he comes and he, he meets with Abraham and, and there's some angels there. And, and, and Abraham knows he has a, a, a nephew there and a family. And Abraham looks at, basically says to God, says, look, don't, don't kill them. You wouldn't kill righteous people, would you? You wouldn't destroy them if there's righteous people there. And God says, no, I don't, I don't want to kill righteous people. I'll... And he says, well, and he says, God says, look, if there's 50 people there in, in the city, I won't kill them. And Abraham starts to negotiate. And he gets all the way down to 10. I won't go through all of the numbers, but he gets down to 10. He says, Lord, if there's 10 people in the city, will you destroy them? He says, no, I won't destroy the city if there's 10 people. What does that show us? When we look at that picture, most of us just think about the destruction of God, the anger of God possibly, or the justice of God. And when we think about that story, no, the picture of that story is one of great mercy. God is saying, I am merciful. I don't want to destroy righteous people. But unrepentant people, I have no choice but in my justice to, to judge them. And yet here, it's the same thing is happening. He's being merciful right now with them. And so we're going to look at what grace is here in just a minute. But I want to ask you a question. Why do you think Jonah didn't want to go? Why do you think Jonah didn't want to go? Now, there's two main reasons most historians believe, and I think one is clear and the other one is obviously possible. But now think about this for a second. We, we think that Nineveh was at least 100 to a couple, two, 300,000 people. We're not sure, but we know it was in the hundreds of thousands in the population. We know that they were a, a, a pagan city, the Assyrians, they were brutal, they were, it was just horrible. I have no reason to think that there was any um, faith there of, of the Christian God, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God speaks to one man and says, I want you to go to that city and preach and tell them they're in sin. Who wants that job, right? Think about this for a second. Picture a city, you know, and I'm not going to pick on any U.S. cities in particular. There's, but think of the worst city in the United States that you would not want to go downtown in the middle of the night or any time during the day and be by yourself. There's probably many that come to your mind, maybe. And if God said to you, I want you to go to that city and I want you to tell them that they're living in sin and they need to repent. How many of us want to do that? I don't know many people are up for that one. And why, do I, why am I telling you that? Because I think that a lot of times we, we want to give, because, you know, we think, well, Jonah could die. I'm sure Jonah's thinking, man, I don't want to go there. They're going to kill me. They're not going to, hand, they're not going to stand for that. And a lot of us want to say, well, if God told me, I would go. I mean, like, if God really spoke to you and you heard God's voice in your head, you would go, right? Sure. God has spoke to you about all sorts of things that you're not doing, right? Me too. So let's, let's be real careful about how we heap this onto Jonah because he didn't obey and he went the other direction. You're running the other direction and I'm running the other direction and all sorts of things in our life. We don't want to read the scripture because we know it's going to be a mirror to us, and so we don't. We don't even want to confront God, and so we can run. We don't want to know. We abandon things. We, we move. We don't, want, we don't want to be obedient because our flesh doesn't want to do it. We're afraid we're going to lose our friends. Jonah's, he's asking Jonah to go to this city that is pagan and, and confront their sin. And so let's have a, a picture kind of, of what Jonah's getting into. If we look at Another minor prophet called Nahum, chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Nahum is 
years later now uh, discussing Nineveh and the kind of people that were there. And I'm sure that it was the same when Jonah was there, when Jonah went. He says this in chapter 3 of verse 1 through 4 of Nahum. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and of deadly charms who betrayed nations with her whorings and the people of her charms. Okay, that's a pretty grim picture of Nineveh, right? And Jonah has been told to go there and to tell them to repent. Now, what's, so it's possible that Jonah didn't want to go because of that. But I think there's a bigger reason and more, probably even more of a, more of a sad reason that he didn't go. Where do we see this? Well, Jonah kind of tells us in chapter 4 of his writings, Chapter one and two, or chapter four, verses one and two. So here, when we get to chapter four, God has already sent Jonah there. He's already been thrown up by the fish and goes, and he he preaches, and and they repent. The city repents. In fact, the king of the city tells everybody to wear sackcloth and repent and fast and and do all sorts of things, and, and they do this. And so you would think that wouldn't that be great? God sends you someplace, the city responds, and they repent before God. You would think, man, that is the most wonderful thing you could ever imagine. Do you think Jonah was happy about that? Nope. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But he, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this what I said when I was Yet in my country, that's like before he left, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you would be gracious, God, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in your disaster. He said, I didn't want to go because I knew you would forgive them. And I didn't want them to be forgiven. I wanted you to kill them all. That's what I wanted. And you think, well, that's such a horrible thing. But you got to remember who they were. They were opposed to Israel. Obviously, Jonah's like, well, we're the chosen people. God, you should kill our enemies. You should take them all out. But if God wants to be merciful, shouldn't Jonah say, well, praise God, you're being merciful. It's going to bring you glory. No, that's not where he went at all. Once again, I want you to think about your own life now for a second. Have you ever been reading an article, watching the news, talking to somebody about a, a group of people, uh, a political movement, a social movement or something, and you just wish God would just take care of that. Well, that's kind of where Jonah was at. But what I want to kind of tell you is that that's going to come one day, but God is the one that decides when when that time has come, when, when, when his judgment is coming, and it will come. But now is not that time. 
Now is the time of grace. Now is the time of repentance, for opportunities for repentance. Why do, the, why do we take the good news to the world? Why do we take the gospel to the hurting world? It's because God is saying, I want to be merciful, and I want to leave time for people to repent and come to know me. Right? That's, and that's what he's demonstrating here. If we want to learn something from Jonah, it's 2,700 years ago, it's that God is merciful, and he wants people to come to repentance, and he can do that if we will just be obedient right? God will bring people to repentance if we will share the truth with them. Jonah didn't want to share the truth with them, and many of us don't want to share the truth with people in our life either. Jonah thought he would end up dead. We struggle to share the truth with our children, let alone going to a city of heathen people that, that impale people. We struggle with sharing the gospel with our neighbor, with our coworker, with our spouse, I just want to challenge you a little bit. One of the things that we can learn by reading things like Jonah is saying, look, we need, to, we need to realize what's going on and what God is doing and that we need to step up in how we live our life and how we love the Lord and what does it look like to be a Christian. So what do we see here? He's merciful, but it's also Gracious. So what is grace? Getting something you don't deserve. If mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So we deserve judgment, and God holds it back. We don't get it. That's mercy. However, mercy without grace just buys us more time. (laughs) Because justice is ultimately going to come Mercy has an end. At some point, judgment will come. So we need a grace. We need something that we don't have, that we don't deserve. And what do we see that the grace of God is? The grace of God is his son. Is that God has come to take upon the wrath because somewhere to be just, God has to take judgment or have judgment on sin. And so he has to put it upon his son. So grace is something you don't deserve. Paul says it this way in Romans 3, 23 and 24. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This idea of justification, it means that we were here in sinful place. We deserved death. God has given us mercy. He's given us time. Then God comes along in Christ and he picks us up and he puts us over here and he says, I'm going to make it just like you've never sinned. I'm going to give you the grace of my son. I'm going to give you... um, I'm going to penalize my son and kill my son in your place so that you can have a righteousness that you do not deserve. But I'm going to give you that as a free gift in Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's a gift. It's a gift. And today, if you've received You've already, we're already acknowledged we're all receiving mercy, but what about, do you have grace in your life? Has God given you, made you a new creation in Christ? He's given you grace, a gift, that not only doesn't mean that you won't suffer the wrath, but you'll spend eternity with him forever. And so not only do we need to remember that every day we live in mercy, but we need to remember that God is exceedingly gracious. I believe that there in Nineveh, not only did he not take them out, but the preaching of the word brought repentance, which really means that when they came to repentance and they trusted in the God of the Old Testament, they were given eternal life in Christ. You say, but yeah, but Jesus hadn't come yet. No, but that still 
what, what was the promise of the saviors, what they were trusting in. They looked forward to the Messiah. We, they didn't know who he was. We looked back. But no one will be in heaven except through Christ in the work of Christ. That's it. The Old Testament people, those people in Nineveh, and we saw in Matthew 12 there, there will be people in Nineveh that will rise up at the last time, at the last days, and they will rise up, and they will condemn the Jews of that time that did not repent. God is exceedingly gracious. He gives life and transforms hearts. Verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and went down into it to go to them, with them, to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So, God's asking him to do something. He doesn't want to. He wants him to kill all those people so he flees as far as he could. And I just want to show you a picture of how, how he flee, fled. So we go to the picture of the map. Here's basically where Joppa's at. Just uh, north of there is, is Jerusalem and Israel's right there. That's where we believe he's probably in there somewhere. God comes to Jonah and says, I, I want you to go to Nineveh, 500 and some miles away, and ask him to repent. And what does Jonah do? He goes to the farthest known place in human history at that moment to get away from God. He gets on a ship, and he starts heading to Tarshish. Now, we don't know how far he gets. Now, I know there's probably no spiritual meaning here in this text, what I'm getting ready to say, but I think it's interesting. It says, he went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it. It's just, I just find it interesting that Joan is willing to pay to get away from God. I mean, he's willing to pay whatever it takes to get away. This isn't just a free ride. He has a, I mean, I think it's there for that reason. It just shows that we want to get away. We want to flee from God so badly sometimes. We'll do whatever it takes to get away. For us, it's, it's getting away maybe from the scripture, right? Because remember, the word of God for us is this. Jonah, speaking to him now, he doesn't realize that he can't get away from God, right? And he'll get taught that by King David here in a minute. So how are you running? Do you think that you can escape God? Do you think that you can run? Do you think you can not go to that Bible study or not come to church or not have that friend? Because you know, that friend's a Christian and I'm, I'm tired of them telling me about Jesus. So I just want to run. I'm willing to lose that friend, in fact, to, to not have to hear it. You're willing to pay the cost of a friendship to not have it. You're willing to pay to, to drown yourself in all sorts of fleshly, worldly activities and things and events and activities to be able to not hear God speaking to you. So don't think that when we look at Jonah and says, well, he ran and, and, he, and he ran for wrong motives, that you're not running for the wrong motives and that you're not paying to run from God. We all do. Now, how far did he get? We don't know. Because God decides he's not going to let him keep running. So what do we see here? Do you think that, and twice here in the text, he says he went down to, uh, see, but Jonah went to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And at the end of that, he writes again, away from the presence of the Lord. 
Like, that was on his mind. He's repeated this in just two sentences there. He wants to get away from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because God is not doing what he wants. It's not what he wants, right? And that, that's so true for us. We, we, God tells us something in, his, in the scripture. He speaks to us in the scripture. And we say, well, I don't, I don't like that. And so, I, you know, years ago, we would joke, you know, certain people would cut that passage out of the text. They just cut it out of their Bible. So I'm not believing that. Well, we do that too. We just don't read it. We just don't acknowledge it. I hear people all the time, well, my God wouldn't do that. But the Bible, I don't know, my God wouldn't do that. That's what you're doing, right? We want to flee from the presence, the truth about who God says he is and what he wants. This picture is, is a, it's a picture of Jonah, but it's a picture of all of us in many ways. So do you, think, do you think that Jonah can run from the presence of the Lord? Is there any place, I don't care that he went, if he got to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away, would the Lord still be there? Yeah. You can't run him. You cannot run him. You can't go far enough. King David realizes this in Psalm 139. Now remember, King David had a, stole a man's wife and had him killed, and, and his, his life was kind of a mess during this time, and he writes this psalm, Psalm 139. And David has this appreciation that he can't hide from the Lord. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? There it is. The fleeing from the presence, same as what Jonah said. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Now what, what David is going to do here is he's going to name like four places kind of to the extremes to kind of really picture that there's nowhere that I can go. And so the first place he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. Well, obviously God is in heaven, right? If I make my bed in Sheol, like hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. So David's saying, look, if I go to heaven, if I go to hell, if I go into the deepest part of the sea, there's no place on earth that I can go that you are not there. And then he says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. He's saying, look, if I could just find a place dark enough, that just you couldn't see me, right? Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. David is just has this appreciation that there is nowhere that he can go. No place on earth, in heaven, in the sea. No, dark, no darkness is, is, is possible to get away from the Lord's presence. So what can we learn here from Jonah running and thinking he can flee? Remember, there is nowhere we can hide from God. So don't even try. Don't even try. It's interesting. Humanity spends a lot of our time running from God. In fact, I would argue that for people that aren't believers, in some respects, they're all running from the God of the Scriptures. We run in all sorts of ways. We do all sorts of things. Um, but we can't. We can't find a place that he is not there. We, we can't go far enough. There's no place that we can run without him being there with us. So where do we see here that, what does God then continue here in verse four? It says, but the Lord hurled a great, so he gets on the ship and they head out for Tarshish. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So do you think God is not going to make sure that Jonah goes to Nineveh? 
No, his will is going to come to be. He's asked him to do it. He's going to make sure that he does it, and he will do it. It's just a matter of whether he does it willingly or maybe begrudgingly. He's going to go. God has a will, and it's going to happen. He can control the seas. He's everywhere. He's, he's, Jonah can't run from him, and so he gets in the ship. He allows Jonah to get in the ship, and he heads out, and then he's going to show Jonah, look, Jonah, you can't run from me. I'm going to do these things, and I'm not going to let that ship go far enough. And you're not, we don't know where he got thrown overboard, and we'll see that in a few weeks. But he gets thrown overboard, and the fish swallows him up, and then he spits back out, and he says, okay, Jonah, now get your butt to Nineveh, right? Have you ever felt that way sometimes, like God is asking you to do something, and you just want to, you just want to rebel against it? And some people rebel against it for years. One of the things I think is very prominent and for all of us, is our salvation experience. For many of us, when we come to see it, we don't want to because we don't want to give up ourselves. We don't want to give up the things that we want to do. And so we, we just kind of say, no, I won't do it. I won't do it. And God pursues us and pursues us and pursues us. And eventually, he gets what he wants. And we come to know him and we, we surrender. Some of us live in our sin and we don't want to give it up. And God just pursues us and pursues us. And even as Christians, we can live in unrepentant sin. I told you several years ago, there was something in my life that I thought I should confess to people in my life, but I didn't want to because I thought it would be catastrophic in my relationships. But it was something that God never eased up on and took me like 20 years. And finally, I broke and I confessed to these people something I thought I would never tell them. And by God's grace, I have still have a wonderful relationship with them. If God is asking you and speaking you to do something to come to follow him, to deny yourself, to, to get rid of that sin in your life. I'm telling you, you can't run anywhere far enough to get away from that voice. But I also want to encourage you that, that he's merciful. Like he's holding back, waiting for you to come. He wishes no one to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. We talked about that last week. He's gracious. Not only does he give you mercy, but he's died for you so that you can have life and have it abundantly. And so what do we see here? We need to remember that God can and will use whatever he chooses to bring about his will. He will use whatever he wants to bring about his will. Whether it's splitting the Red Sea, whether it's causing you to come to repentance, whether it's swallowing you up in a whale or a, a large fish, he's going to get what he wants. He is sovereign over all things. I think of the passage there in Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about humility. And at the end of that, it's talking about Jesus. And it says, you know, in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is going to get glory whether you decide to bow now or bow later. Jonah was either going to go now or he was going to go later. But at some point, Jonah was going to go. And at some point, every one of us, believer or not believer, are going to bow to Christ. And I just want to say, why would we not bow now? He's been gracious. He's been merciful. He's long-suffering. He's doing all of these things. We can't hide. You know that. I know that. There's no place we can go to get away from him. Why not just submit? The flesh. We need to be delivered from it. So what's the takeaway today as we close? 
Know and remember what God has done so you can better glorify God in the present. Know, study your Bible. You need to know. You can't remember something that you don't know. You can't recite scripture that you've never read. You can't hide it in your heart if you've never read it and put it there. So you need to first know it, and then you need to meditate on it, remember it, and when you do that, it will change how you live in the present. So I want to encourage you. Remember that God is merciful. Yes, there is justice that will come in the end if we do not turn and repent and honor God. But the pictures of these things are that God is gracious. He wants them to come to repentance. He is merciful. He is gracious. He wants us to come. We can't hide. So let's just come and kneel today and live a life that that God has made possible for us as believers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you that you are gracious and merciful. Even now, today, as we gather in this place, we understand that you are having mercy on us because of our rebellion, because of our internal sin, our outward sin, our sinful hearts, our actions. You're having mercy. You want all to come to repentance. So, Father, if there is people here that haven't come to repentance and and become a new creation in Christ Jesus, Father, I pray that they will ask you to save them today, that they will step into that grace that you've made available, the person of your Son, the work of Christ, his perfect life, that they will trust in that, not in themselves, but in your perfect work. Father, that when they do that, they will see the grace abounds over their sin. That nothing in their life is not being possibly forgiven and be dealt with in a way that will remove it from our life. Father, we praise you today. We thank you for that. Help us to remember that we cannot run from you no matter where we go, and help that to be a great feeling, Father, that no matter where we go, even as Kathy said in her testimony, that you were there and she can't do it without you, that no matter where we go, no matter what struggles we have, no matter what tragedies in our life, no matter what circumstances, no matter what sin we're dealing with, of relationships, that, Father, you are there and you are gracious and you are merciful. Father, help us to learn from the past so that we can glorify you in the present. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.